Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. An update on the FBI's search of former President Trump's home. Trump is filing a lawsuit to stop the Justice Department from reviewing what they seized until a watchdog is assigned. Dr. Anthony Fauci is stepping down in December and Republican lawmakers are vowing to investigate him even when he's out of office. Biden's pause on oil and gas leases was recently ruled unlawful, but his latest inflation package could bring big changes for the energy industry. A school board in Wisconsin bans pride flags, Black Lives Matter flags, and all other political messages in classrooms. Debates over the policy are heating up. A missing teen's car found in a lake. Law enforcement searched for two weeks, but a private company found it in less than an hour. In the AP preseason, All-America teams are here, with reigning Heisman winner Bryce Young highlighting the first team. We'll tell you how many of his Alabama teammates joined him. Former President Trump filed a lawsuit in a U.S. District Court today. He's asking that the judge appoint a special master to independently review what the FBI seized from his Mar-a-Lago estate. This would mean that the Justice Department won't be able to review the seized documents until there's a special master. And the special master would decide what documents will be returned to Trump after the review. This is Trump's first legal action following the raid. And a judge ruled today that the government hasn't proven that a key document should remain sealed from the public. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on that. U.S. officials claim the affidavit for the warrant, which convinced the judge to approve the warrant, needs extensive redaction to protect FBI agents and witnesses, as well as the ongoing investigation into Trump. They argue there's no point unsealing a version that's blacked out because there'd be nothing of substance left. But in a new ruling Monday, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt says those arguments aren't good enough, at least not yet. Judge Reinhardt said, I cannot say at this point that partial redactions will be so extensive that they'll result in a meaningless disclosure but I may ultimately reach that conclusion after hearing further from the government. Reinhardt ordered the government to file more evidence to support keeping the entire document under seal. He also wants proposed redactions to the document. He'll review the proposals and either reject them or agree with them. If he rejects them, the government will have a chance to appeal to a higher court. If he agrees with them, he'll release the redacted document. Meanwhile, former Pentagon Chief of Staff Kash Patel says documents that were stored at Mar-a-Lago and marked classified were declassified when former President Trump left office. Patel told the Wall Street Journal that officials will have a hard time proving that those documents weren't declassified. In the interview published Sunday, Patel said the bottom line is that Trump wanted to get the information out to the public. Although Patel said he didn't know exactly what was in the boxes the FBI took from Trump's home, he said it had to do with Russiagate and the Hillary Clinton email scandal. Patel's comments challenged a central claim made by the Justice Department that urgent action had to be taken because sensitive material was at risk. So far, neither the DOJ nor the FBI have offered a public explanation about why they searched a former president's home or what they were looking for. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Dr. Anthony Fauci plans to step down after decades of service. But Republicans say that won't stop them from investigating him if they win control of Congress this November. And the CDC. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top doctor who became a household name during the COVID-19 pandemic, as many people vaccinated. is leaving office after five decades of service. In a Monday statement, Fauci says he'll step down in December as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and as chief medical advisor to President Biden. He stresses that he's, quote, not retiring, but pursuing the next phase of his career. While former President Trump has said... But Fauci is a disaster. President Biden praised Fauci on Monday, saying his work has touched all Americans' lives. Gain-of-function research has the potential to unleash a global pandemic. Fauci's retirement, meanwhile, comes as Republicans vow to investigate him over allegations that he funded virus research in Wuhan, China. Again in 2014, Dr. Fauci gave another grant to DASIC for SARS research in China. DASIC partnered with who? 
the Wuhan Institute of Virology. A slew of Republicans said Monday that Fauci's resignation won't shield him from a probe, with Senator Rand Paul vowing, quote, a full-throated investigation into the origins of the pandemic. And House Minority Whip Steve Scalise saying Fauci will have, quote, ample time in retirement to testify. Fauci, meanwhile, said this last month. Investigate me for what? For telling people to get vaccinated? For telling people to wear a mask? If they want to investigate me for that, go ahead. And while Representative Andy Biggs accuses Fauci of, quote, conveniently resigning to avoid accountability, Fauci has previously denied that pressure from Republicans would cause him to quit. So because there are a lot of people who have ideas about conspiracies and, and changing minds and flip-flopping, that's not a reason to step down. Not at all. Reporting by Iris Tao, NTD News. A federal appeals court has blocked a subpoena that would have made Senator Lindsey Graham testify before a Georgia grand jury investigating the 2020 election. A lower court will now have to determine the fate of the subpoena. A U.S. district judge ruled several days ago that Graham had to testify before a grand jury. That's in connection with former President Donald Trump's election-related efforts in Georgia after the 2020 election. Fonnie Willis is Fulton County's district attorney. She wrote in court filings that the grand jury required Graham's testimony about two calls he allegedly made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. She says that Graham called Raffensperger and his staff to have them re-examine certain absentee ballots to explore a more favorable outcome for Trump. According to Graham and his attorneys, the subpoena would violate the Constitution's speech and debate clause for lawmakers. Graham told Fox News weeks ago that those protections are absolute and that Congress members can't be compelled to testify in small matters that would disrupt the legislative branch's operations. And a federal judge recently ruled that President Biden's halt on oil and gas leases is unlawful, but Biden has now signed off on other big changes for fossil fuels and renewable energy. What does this mean for you and for the future of American energy? NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. Nearly two years after Biden issued an executive order to pause oil and gas leases on federal lands, a federal judge has ruled this action was unlawful. Now the federal government must continue to lease lands in the 13 states that challenged the law. The states sued Biden, saying the lease ban violated the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. Nearly 20 percent of American oil production comes from the Outer Continental Shelf, so this ruling is good news for Americans' pocketbooks. The industry and the market in particular, knowing that that oil is going to be on its way, you're going to see some relief even right now. So it'll be a gradual process for the impacts of resuming this oil production affecting gasoline prices in a good way. And if gasoline prices fall as a result of this, the Biden administration will be taking credit for something they've been fighting so hard to oppose, and that's the irony. This ruling comes as President Biden recently signed the so-called Inflation Reduction Act into law. This new law incentivizes American businesses and consumers to transition to renewable energy by offering massive tax credits. It also imposes penalties on oil and gas producers through higher royalty rates and fees on methane emissions. So the judge's ruling as well as the new Inflation Reduction Act with the green energy tax credits, how do you see all of this combined impacting the oil and gas industry moving forward? Well, there are so many policies being implemented that are working at cross purposes, or in this case, a federal court decision. So while the Biden administration's fighting tooth and nail to shut down production, where 20% of our domestic oil production is coming from, because of this judge's decision, that's going to help mitigate the harmful effects of many other Biden policies. So it's going to be a mix. After a record high average of $5 a gallon in June, gas prices have continued to drop over the past month, now sitting at $3.91 a gallon. It's still well above the $2 average from two years ago. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. An update on a missing California teen. Today, officials confirmed a private company found Kylie Rodney's car underwater on Sunday. But the question is why police, who searched the same lake, couldn't find it. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. After a two-week search by several law enforcement agencies, private search and rescue company Adventures with Purpose found the car of a missing California teen. We have found 
Kylie Rodney's vehicle and have confirmed that there were remains inside. Officials say it's more than likely the remains belong to Kylie Rodney. In a Facebook post on Sunday, the company said the car is upside down in only 14 feet of water. Numerous law enforcement agencies had already searched the lake, but they couldn't find it. At a press conference Monday, the Nevada County Sheriff's Office said they'll need to debrief to analyze what happened. That's a great question. That's one that everybody's going to have, right, is, is how did we not find it when we were searching? Uh, the lake was extensively searched with side sonar, with an ROV. Uh, we had divers. We had swimmers. Um, I think that's part of what we're going to have to go back to, to do and, and debrief. The 16-year-old had been missing since August 6th after attending a party at the Prosser family campground. Officials directed Adventures with Purpose to a lake near the campground where she disappeared. And on Sunday, the company quickly found the vehicle. The sheriff's office spokesperson said the company has more experience. You know, when peace officers are out in the field and volunteers and, and searchers, uh, it doesn't mean that they're experts in the field, right? These are sometimes ancillary duties and we're calling from other agencies to try to jump in. And tracking underwater is an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, a lot of this equipment is high-end, very expensive, and, and you really need to have a lot of uh, practice and expertise. Questions remain on the identity of the body and the cause of death. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And now to Wisconsin, where a school board is banning teachers from displaying political messages in classrooms or on themselves. And this includes pride flags and Black Lives Matter flags. Students are reacting. The Kettle Moraine School Board in Wisconsin voted last week to keep a code of conduct in place. The code says staff cannot use their positions to promote partisan politics, sectarian religious views, or, quote, selfish propaganda. After initial legal analysis, uh, the expectation is that teachers and administration will not have political flags or religious messaging in their classroom or on their person. This expectation includes pride flags. This expectation relates to staff emails and e email signature lines. The policy also says teachers cannot include their preferred gender pronouns in their email signatures. The superintendent of the school board has said that MAGA hats, BLM flags, and we back the badge signs can be political as well. Um, I, I, we're in a world where politics are highlighted and, uh, and, and it, it just it puts people in uncomfortable positions. I feel the staff can fully support students. Only one member of the school board voted against the policy. The school board says the policy is not meant to discriminate against any groups, but simply to let teachers know where to draw the line. The ban applies only to staff members, not students. Two high school students in the district began a petition against the policy last month and have gathered over 13,000 signatures. The Wisconsin ACLU says it is investigating the policy. The school district covers 10 schools in Waukesha County and serves more than 3,500 students. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And in Arizona, parents appear to be lapping up the state's expanded Empowerment Scholarship Accounts program. A note on the Department of Education's website last week said a high volume of traffic on the site may cause disruptions, likely from pre-registration for the program. That's after Governor Doug Ducey made nearly $7,000 available yearly for each K-12 student to attend a private school or be homeschooled, money that may have otherwise been spent on their public school education. Earlier today, I spoke with Jenny Clark, the founder of the school choice advocacy nonprofit Love Your School, for her thoughts. Jenny Clark, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Governor Doug Ducey recently signed an expansive school scholarship program into law. The goal is to give families more choice about their children's education. How do you think this will impact the state's children? Well, we're very, very excited about the passage of House Bill 2853. It's an expansion of Arizona's already extremely successful empowerment scholarship account program. And it makes uh, this program um, open to all 1.1 million public school students in our state. So we're very excited about it. And we're excited that so many more families will finally have access and opportunity to put their kids in the environment that best meets their needs. 
Now, critics say that the expansion of the program will make it harder to hold educators accountable, as the funds would go wherever the parent chooses, without records being kept necessarily. What's your take on that? Well, we believe that parents are the ultimate and best accountability when it comes to their child's education. I have five children right now that benefit from the ESA program, and we have very strict rules and guidelines for how we can use the scholarship. Uh, we have to upload receipts, degrees, um, certifications for all of our tutors and therapists. So there's accountability on that side. But then on the other side, related to academic performance, nobody cares more about their child's education than the parents. So we really trust parents uh, to decide what education environment is or is not working for them. Now, the expansion is meant to give parents more options, as you mentioned, which they may not have been able to afford without it. Do you think it should be limited to low-income families? Well, that's a great question. Here in Arizona, um, there is no income requirement for public school students. Um, so families all over Arizona who are wealthy um, put their kids in public school and the state pays out, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for those students because we realize that education is a public good. With the empowerment scholarship, it's only 90% of the state portion. So you have a situation where families are doing great things for their kids with the scholarship, but we're actually saving taxpayers every time a family goes on to an ESA. So we really believe that the program should be uh, similar to the public school where there is no income requirement on families um, in order to have equity across the board. Some argue that we should put our focus into building up public schools instead of taking funding away from them. In your view, what's been wrong with public schools thus far? Well, the money for uh, education is there for the education of the child. So whether that happens in a district or charter school or whether that happens with an ESA in a homeschool environment or a private school, those dollars are there for the education of that child. And the money should follow the child to whatever environment best works for them. We know that so many uh, Arizona families love their public schools. They plan to stay at their public schools. But for those children where that transitional environment is just not working for them anymore, they deserve to have the option and the opportunity of an empowerment scholarship. And you must have seen other families navigating these options too through the work that you do. How have you seen those families benefiting from this program? Well, I mean, it's just incredible. You're talking about students who, even because of COVID, might be one or two years behind in their learning. Maybe it's just a specific subject like math or reading. But with an ESA, they're not only able to, you know, put their child into a private school, maybe something that works better for them where they can get caught up. But families also are choosing to uh, bring their child home and get specialized tutors and therapists to get their children where they need to be. They're even allowed to use uh, their funds for specific education evaluations to find out if their child may have a learning disability. So we really see parents who choose an ESA uh, able to do incredible things and access incredible education options because of the scholarship. So it's very exciting to think about what this is going to do for so many students in our state. All right. Thank you very much, Jenny Clark, founder of Love Your School. Thank you. Coming up, a graphic video quickly gaining attention on social media. Three Arkansas officers were filmed beating a suspect. And we hear some of the stories behind an organization working to help the children of brave men and women who have served in the U.S. military when we come back. Welcome back. Three officers in Arkansas have been suspended after a video emerged of them beating a suspect on the street. Fox 16 News reporter Mitchell McCoy posted the video on Twitter. Just a warning, some viewers may find the following footage disturbing due to its graphic nature. The video was taken on Sunday in the town of Mulberry, about 140 miles northwest of Little Rock. The officers were responding to a report of a man making threats outside a convenience store. The suspect is identified as Randall Worcester, who faces multiple charges, including second-degree battery, resisting arrest, and making terroristic threats. Police say he was taken to a hospital for treatment, then released and booked into a county jail. 
Authorities identified the three officers as Crawford County Sheriff's deputies Zach King and Levi White and Mulberry Police Officer Thel Riddle. All three of them have been suspended. Arkansas State Police have launched an investigation. And down on the U.S. southern border, a new report says nearly 5 million illegal immigrants have crossed in the 18 months since President Biden took office. That's a little less the entire population of Ireland. The numbers come from a report by the Federation for American Immigration Reform. After rolling back Trump-era policies, Biden presided over almost 1.9 million arrests of illegal immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border last year. That was the largest number of apprehensions in a calendar year, but we've already surpassed it this year. Here are the most recent updates from July. Customs and Border Protection reported that 10 individuals on the FBI's terror watch list were apprehended, bringing the total for the current fiscal year since last October to 66. The agency also seized over 2,000 pounds of synthetic opioid fentanyl just last month. That's enough to kill every single American and then a whole lot more. It tops the previous monthly record of nearly 1,300 pounds in April. And now to San Francisco, where more than twice as many people died from overdose than from COVID-19 in 2020 during the height of the pandemic. NTD's Jason Blair brings us more from a rally held on the first National Fentanyl Prevention and Awareness Day. Mothers Against Drug Deaths held a rally on the first National Fentanyl Prevention and Awareness Day in front of City Hall in San Francisco. The theme was, what has fentanyl stolen from you? Hand-painted rocks were placed on the steps leading up to the podium, each one representing a life lost to overdose in San Francisco this year. There are nearly 350 rocks. Overdose is the number one killer of people aged 18 to 45 in the U.S. We want change, and that's what this rally is about. Stop killing our people! Mothers Against Drug Deaths has been working to raise awareness of the overdose issue since August of last year. Singling out fentanyl, a drug the DA says that one pill can kill. We just started meeting more and more um, moms and families who have lost um, loved ones or they have loved ones on the street in addiction. And so much of it now is fentanyl. And devastatingly, so many of these parents never have heard the word fentanyl before their child died from fentanyl poisoning. According to the DEA, drug dealers are selling fake pills marketed as legitimate prescription medicine but they actually contain fentanyl. This has led to overdose deaths of people who never even intended to take fentanyl. If you have kids, talk to your kids. You need, if you yourself don't know about it, get educated uh, so that you understand the crisis that we're facing right now. Overdoses in open air drug markets in San Francisco have attracted national attention in recent years. Much of that attention has been fueled by videos being shared through social media. People travel from all around to come to San Francisco just to, 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 to participate in this here open drug market. And I remember the day I called my mother. I said, Mom, I just saw someone the same age as you with a needle in their leg wearing a diaper. What city did I move to? Stephen Martin Pinto, a San Francisco firefighter, said the unchecked drug markets can be distressing. But when these things are allowed to proliferate, these open-air drug markets, and nobody does anything about it. It's like you're, you feel like you're uh, fighting in a battle that just has no end or nobody even cares to fight. Many people also spoke in opposition against Senate Bill 57, a bill heading to California Governor Gavin Newsom's desk, which would allow some cities in the state to have sites where illegal drugs can be used under supervision. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. And in New York, the New York Yankees held a military appreciation game on Saturday. It was a chance for people to come together and say thanks to the U.S. military and to pay tribute to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, which helps the children of Medal of Honor recipients and fallen special operators. It's a sacrifice that goes unnoticed by most. The devastation that occurs with the family. 
A horrific event that changes the lives of children forever. You get a knock on the door and there's an officer in uniform and a chaplain and they're telling you that one of your parents is never coming home. Jalisha Petty got a call in 2010 telling her that her father, First Sergeant Anthony Dion Brock, was lost forever. I said, what happened? And he said, your dad is gone. And that day still plays back in my mind. She says he was an amazing person. He was so full of life. He was a man who loved his job. He was proud to serve his country. And most of all, I think he was proud to be dad. Retired Major General Clay Hutmacher is the CEO of the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. He says despite the trauma, he's seen many families pull through. To see these kids overcome that and to achieve their dreams and their full potential um, has been very gratifying for me and, and uh, certainly for the families. The Special Operations Warrior Foundation reaches out after a family's loss and stays in touch throughout the years. They provide scholarship grants from cradle to career. They meet with us, they come and check in on us, not just once you're done with school, but this is a lifelong commitment that they are giving to our families. So I'm extremely, extremely grateful. One of the foundation's youngest students started school last year. Everest Hess lost her father, Staff Sergeant Jacob Hess, in 2019. And so far, the foundation has committed to funding nearly 1,000 students more than 80% of whom are now in post-secondary education. All this was made possible by donations from individuals and organizations, some, such as the Steinbrenner family, stretching back decades. Hotmacher says after 9-11, the late New York Yankees owner George Steinbrenner wrote a very generous check to the foundation. The donation was done in private, just one of Steinbrenner's many anonymous acts of charity. And he, as he handed it to the then president of the foundation, he said, you may not know you need this money, but you're going to need this money for those families. And this isn't just a scholarship. For many, it's also a community, including for those now offering their service through the foundation. And what's it like to, to watch them um, grow from this? It's been a blessing for me to continue to serve in this capacity after taking off the uniform. The former U.S. Army Special Operations Officer used to fly helicopters as his specialty. And now... I tell people all the time, I have three sons. If something happened to me, I would want somebody to take care of my sons the way the Special Ops Warrior Foundation takes care of our families. It's the kind of service and dedication that turns sacrifice into strength, one child at a time. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. Coming up, street intersections are being taken over by night in Los Angeles. We'll see why people are blocking off the public roads and what's being done to stop it. And the AP preseason All-America teams are here with reigning Heisman winner Bryce Young highlighting the first team. NTD's Dave Martin has how many of Young Alabama's teammates joined him. Late-night donuts might sound like nothing more than a snack before bed, but that's not the case in Los Angeles. They're the main focus of street takeovers, where people block off intersections to drive donuts in their cars. NTD's Jackie Rios talked to the L.A. Sheriff's Department about what goes on there and what's being done about it. Dangerous street takeovers are becoming more and more common here in Southern California. But what exactly is the street takeover and what is law enforcement doing to put an end to this growing trend? We talked to the LA County Sheriff's Department to find out more. Intersections are new popular gathering places in Los Angeles for people to show off their driving skills. LA Sheriff's Department Sergeant Michael Downing explained what goes on during these takeovers. This one was uh, recent within the last week and uh, they had approximately 20 to 30 cars out here and about 100, 150 people blocking this intersection and 
doing the donuts and stunts in the middle of the road. And as you can see by the tire marks and stuff in the road, they even come up on the sidewalks, through the crosswalks, and come close to the parked cars and stuff that are out here every night. Downing said that the gatherings aren't necessarily malicious, but they are against the law. They come out just to watch it like any other show, I guess, and spectator sport, more or less. And a lot of them come out and they just think it's fun. They'll come out for the night and don't realize that they can also be cited or arrested for just being out here and watching. But it's not always just for fun. Last week, a street takeover turned into a mob, looting a local 7-Eleven. Law enforcement has been working to clear out these takeovers. With the resources that we need on a regular night, and it depending on what station it is, it can take two to three patrol cars to clear out an intersection. Sometimes they have to use a lot, utilize our helicopter support and additional resources from other stations, depending on how large of a crowd they have and if the crowd becomes out of control and violent. And it's taking the resources away from other priority calls. Um, it's pulling resources from other cities and then we're leaving those cities shorthanded if we have to call it. Los Angeles has installed countermeasures known as pot dots, but drivers have found ways around them. CBS Los Angeles shared footage of drivers circumventing the dots. Instead of just clearing out takeovers, Downing offered a legal alternative where people can do the exact same thing. For those that participate in it, that it is illegal and it's not worth it. Take it to a track that does allow it. There are several racetracks in LA County and San Bernardino and Riverside that do allow this kind of event with safety and everything else. For the residents to get caught up in it, don't drive through it because it will cause more issues for yourself. Street takeovers are more than just a nuisance. These activities are illegal, they involve extremely dangerous driving, and these activities can result in property damage, injury, and even death. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los Angeles. And staying in California, over the weekend, bright banners, vibrant clothes, and music filled the streets of San Francisco. The occasion was actually to celebrate a milestone of people quitting the Chinese Communist Party, reaching a number in the hundreds of millions. NTD's Jason Blair was on the scene. Here in San Francisco, a group is celebrating a milestone. 400 million people have quit the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, and its affiliated organizations. That's according to data compiled by the New York-based Global Tuidong Center, which means the Quit the Party Center in English. It focuses on encouraging people to renounce their oath to the CCP. Many people who've renounced the CCP use aliases to protect themselves from reprisals. And that's a milestone number. That's a big number. And I think that it should scale even higher. And I think with that kind of number, it can wake people up who are not uh, Falun Dafa practitioners to understand the importance of why and why they should sign that as well. In honor of the milestone, hundreds of practitioners of Falun Dafa, also known as Falun Gong, gathered from around the Bay Area to hold a celebratory parade in San Francisco. I'm very happy. Now there's 400 million people quitting the CCP. The goal is not to just have people quit the party, but to learn the reality of the CCP's crimes against humanity. That there's so many evil things there. Cultural revolution, you know, yeah, the student moment in Tiananmen Square, so many students killed. On June 4th, 1989, after the pro-democracy student protest, the communist regime rolled out tanks and fired guns on college students in the heart of China's capital, Beijing. It's now remembered as the Tiananmen Square massacre. But I was in China that time. I don't know at all. They say no single student killed. All I, I can get is from the yeah, state-run media, radio, television. Xiong, like many other Chinese people, didn't learn the truth about the deaths until she traveled to the United States. 
I was part of the medical staff trying to rescue the students and citizens. Our hospital floors, it was like a river of blood. There was blood everywhere. We've never seen this before. It was like war. Zhang also said she remembers the propaganda news on television reporting no deaths, but what she witnessed was one death after another. After that, she made up her mind to move and seek freedom in the United States. For years, Zhang made calls to China encouraging people to quit the CCP. One time she called a dorm with six college students to expose the Communist Party and told them about the June 4th massacre. After they heard that, they were very shocked. After that, all six of them, some were about to officially join the party, some were part of the Young Pioneers and Communist Youth League. They all quit the CCP. Religious and ethnic groups are also persecuted in China. Since 1999, Falun Gong practitioners are continuously tortured, forced into labor camps, and even have their organs removed for surgical transplants while they're still alive. Truth, compassion, and forbearance is the, the exact opposite of lie, cheat, steal. The CCP does lie, cheat, and steal, as we know in tech and in politicians and politics. So the next step they do is like a gang, fear, force, extortion. That's what they've done with practitioners. Parade onlookers were able to learn about the practice and what the CCP has done. We never thought about like something like this is happening in the world. So it's kind of really sad that it's, it should be like the freedom to meditate. Down with communism! Down with communism! Chinese people, quit the Communist Party! Woo! I think, you know, the greatest support you can give someone is to listen, understand, much like we did today. We just came out for a stroll in, in the city where we live and, and witnessed a parade and wanted to know more about it. The Tuidong Center has also organized a petition to help support NCCP. So far, it has gathered two and a half million signatures. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Little League World Series player Easton Oliverson, who last week fell from his bunk at the Williamsport Complex and suffered a serious head injury, might be able to make a full recovery, according to his father. For now, the 12-year-old is scheduled to fly back to Utah on Tuesday and remain in a hospital there. The Oliverson family has continually updated Easton's progress with an Instagram account called Miracles for Tank, which has over 25,000 followers. Easton, who was in an induced coma a week ago, can communicate with his parents, is able to feed himself, and has started walking again. On Sunday, the family posted a message saying, quote, We have seen how prayers have created miracles in Easton's journey. Easton and his teammates were the first team from Utah to qualify for the Little League World Series. They were eliminated though Sunday in a 10-2 loss to a team from Iowa. In college football news, the AP's preseason All-America teams have been announced and they're highlighted by six players from number one ranked Alabama. Reigning Heisman winner Bryce Young made first team selection at quarterback, while defensive teammates Will Anderson Jr., Eli Ricks, and Jordan Battle joined him on the other side of the ball. Meanwhile, two more offensive teammates were named to the second team. The second-ranked Ohio State Buckeyes placed five players on the two teams with three first-team selections, including quarterback C.J. Stroud, placed fourth in the Heisman voting a year ago. In a sign of how the times have changed, seven players on the two teams have transferred during their careers at one time or another, including first-team wideout selection Jordan Addison, who left Pitt for USC this past offseason after winning the Blitnikoff Award as the nation's top receiver. In addition, second-team linebacker Andre Carter II of Army was the only player outside the Power Five conferences and Notre Dame to make the list. In NFL news, Giants rookie defensive end Kayvon Thibodeau is expected to miss three to four weeks with a sprained MCL. Thibodeau was injured in Sunday's preseason game against the Bengals. The fifth overall pick went down after being cut blocked by Cincinnati's Thaddeus Moss. 
Thibodeau immediately grabbed his knee but was able to walk off the field. The 6'5 Thibodeau registered 19 sacks during his three-year career at Oregon and it was a consensus All-American in 2021. The Giants season starts on September 11 when they play at Tennessee. Elsewhere in the league, Tampa Bay quarterback Tom Brady is expected to return to the team today according to NFL Network insider Ian Rappaport. Brady has been away since August 11th for what head coach Todd Bowles called personal reasons. Bowles said the absence was scheduled well in advance of training camp. The 45-year-old Brady is set to be the oldest starting quarterback in NFL history when he suits up this fall. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, the daughter of a prominent Putin ally is dead after a carved bomb attack in Moscow. Russia is blaming Ukraine. And with voting underway for the next British Prime Minister, we'll take a look at the two candidates' China policies after this short break. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan. Russia today accused Ukraine's secret services of killing the daughter of a Putin ally in a car bomb attack near Moscow. Zachary Goldman has the details. Russia on Monday accused Ukraine of orchestrating the car bombing that killed the daughter of a prominent Russian nationalist near Moscow over the weekend. Russian investigators said Darya Dugina was killed on Saturday when a bomb placed in a Toyota Land Cruiser exploded. Dugina's father, Alexander Dugin, is a prominent advocate for Russian military expansion. In his first public statement on his daughter's death, Dugin said Darya had been savagely killed by Ukraine. Ukraine, which has been fending off a Russian military invasion for nearly six months, has denied any involvement in the bombing. Saturday's attack comes after a number of recent high-profile explosions in Russian-controlled territory, which some suspect could showcase Ukraine's ability to launch long-range attacks or sabotage. But Kiev has so far not claimed responsibility. Kiev on Monday banned public celebrations of its National Independence Day, marking 31 years of freedom from Soviet rule due to fears of retaliatory Russian rocket attacks. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, in a weekend video address, said Moscow could try, quote, something particularly ugly in the run-up to Wednesday, which also marks half a year since Russia invaded. Russia launched what it calls a, quote, special military operation on February 24th, which Moscow said aimed to demilitarize its smaller neighbor and protect Russian-speaking communities. Ukraine and its Western backers accused Moscow of waging an imperial-style war of conquest. Russian President Vladimir Putin paid tribute to Darya Dugina as a Russian patriot. Moscow's FSB security service was quoted by Russian news agencies as saying the attack on Dugina was carried out by a Ukrainian woman who surveilled Dugina around Moscow for days and then fled to neighboring Estonia after the attack. Estonia's foreign ministry declined to comment, and there was no immediate comment from Estonia's interior ministry or police and border guard service. Alexander Dugin said a memorial service for his daughter will be held on Tuesday. And in around two weeks' time, the UK's next prime minister will be revealed. While the rise in the cost of living has dominated the campaigns, both candidates have also said they'll harden their stance on Beijing. Here's NTD's Jane Wuerl with more on this. Voting for the next Prime Minister is now underway. Both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have said that if they get the keys to number 10, they'll be tough on Beijing. We take a look at what their China policies could look like in reality and how important it is for Conservative Party members. How high up on the agenda are UK-China relations for Conservative Party members? Well, I, I'm really pleased that the issue is, is uh, an issue in the leadership race. And I think it's probably the first leadership election where China has even been mentioned, uh, let alone uh, debated. Um, and it's interesting to see the two candidates sort of vying with each other to, to see who, who can sound uh, stronger. Um, and I'm particularly interested that Rishi Sunak, um, 
who I always thought as chancellor was uh, more pro um, the, the business uh, relationship with China, um, has felt the need to come out so, so strongly. So I welcome uh, all of that. Um, and I think for ordinary Conservative Party members, I mean, it's obviously not the major issue. I mean, the cost of living, um, uh, other economic issues, uh, public services, the NHS, obviously uh, much closer to people's, uh, most people's priorities. But I think um, because of things that have happened in the last few years, um, what's happened in Hong Kong, the uh, increasing awareness about what's happened to, to the Uyghurs, um, as well as, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the debate over Huawei and a number of other issues, people are much more aware of the challenges China poses uh, than they used to be. So I think it, it is an issue that people would be thinking about. And you touched on this, um, Rishi Sunak, he changed his tune recently, announcing a tougher line on China. So how do the two contenders, UK-China policies, compare? Well, I think... Liz Truss probably has a stronger track record uh, on China. I mean, she, even before she was foreign secretary, she was uh, speaking out uh, uh, about China. Um, certainly as foreign secretary, she's, she's been very outspoken. Admittedly, I would say um, it's mostly been rhetoric. Um, there has, there's been less in terms of concrete policy. Um, but I think she, she can lay claim to a, to a stronger track record of, of speaking out. Um, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, did come out with some specific uh, policy uh, pledges, um, particularly on Confucius Institutes um, and I, I think a number of other uh, issues. Um, and and so I welcome that. Um, uh, and we'll have to see. You know, ho hopefully they'll uh, say more about it before the race ends. And whichever one of them wins, I, I hope they will translate it from rhetoric in, into action. Sunak also committed to review all UK-Chinese research partnerships which could assist China's military. We'll find out in the coming months how these policies transpire. Following a talk for Hong Kongers discussing the two contenders' UK-China policies, we caught up with Telegraph columnist Juliet Samuel, who was a speaker at the event. It's interesting, it's coming up tonight, um, about Boris Johnson's stance on China. So what did you make of Boris Johnson's China stance? Uh, Boris Johnson was extremely soft and I would say delusional on China. He really had this image of Anglo-Chinese uh, relations that dated back to a previous era, to this so-called golden era, um, when you know the UK and China were trying to, to warm up relations. He'd done a trip to Beijing back in the day where he'd had a wonderful time and he'd ridden a Boris, ridden a Boris bike around and all these people were cheering him and he still had this idea that there was a golden goose that we could capture, there was a huge trade opportunity and he hadn't really caught up with you know the camps in Xinjiang, um, Covid, Hong Kong, you know, he, that hadn't really percolated through into his brain as this is a fundamentally sinister malign regime, we cannot do business with them. He still retained um, a lot of illusions and he stopped a lot of policy that would have opened, you know, opened our eyes and, and educated the government on the threat we're facing. While such a foreign registration act has already been implemented in the US and Australia, it's designed to discourage affiliation with the Chinese regime and to increase transparency. Now, Liz Truss does appear to be the front-runner of the le this leadership race, but we, of course, won't know who the winner will be until Boris Johnson's replacement is announced in September. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. A former prime minister is facing charges under Pakistan's anti-terrorism law. That comes after a fiery speech he gave on Saturday. Police in Islamabad filed charges against former prime minister Imran Khan over what they said was a threat in the speech in which he spoke about police torture. Khan named the police chief and a judge and said, quote, we won't spare you. Police responded by saying that the purpose of the speech was to spread terror. Dozens of Khan's supporters gathered outside his home today, chanting slogans against the government and the police. They said they would prevent law enforcement from arresting Khan. So far, there have been no reports of his arrest. And coming up, a rare prehistoric site has emerged amid Spain's worst drought in decades. It's believed to date back to 5000 BC. Find out more after this short break.
over to Spain, where archaeologists are delighted about the emergence of a prehistoric stone circle in a dam whose waterline has receded. Antides John D. has this story. It's officially known as the Dolmen of Guadalperal, but dubbed the Spanish Stonehenge. The circle of dozens of megalithic stones is believed to date back to 5000 BC. Experts are racing to study the circle before it gets submerged again. It's a surprise because it's a rare opportunity to be able to study again a site that had not been fairly studied before. First 100 years ago and then in 2019, very quickly, and not in the way archaeologists are used to working, at a very slow pace. It currently sits fully exposed in one corner of the Val de Cañas Reservoir, in the central province of Caceres, where authorities say the water level has dropped to 28% of capacity. The site was discovered by German archaeologist Hugo Obermeyer in 1926, but the area was flooded in 1963 in a rural development project under Francisco Franco's dictatorship. Since then, it has only become fully visible four times. Guadalperal is a collective tomb. Burials took place in it for more than 2,000 years, so everything that was found there in the 20s are remains of the trousseau that accompanied the dead. Dolmens are vertically arranged stones usually supporting a flat boulder. Although there are many scattered across Western Europe, little is known about who erected them. Human remains found in or near many have led to an often cited theory that they are tombs. Local historical and tourism associations have advocated moving the Guadalperal stones to a museum or elsewhere on dry land, but for now they are staying where they are. The Iberian Peninsula has been at its driest in 1,200 years, and winter rains are expected to diminish further. So archaeologists may find they have the time to make new discoveries about the stones. John D, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.